morning, Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Douglas Simpoga in Washington. Today is Thursday, March 24th. Here are some stories we are covering this morning. As the world marks international tuberculosis day to day, the World Health Organization says there's an urgent need for investment of resources, support, care and information into the fight against the disease. At Micah's home in central Bamako Tuesday, where his family was seated by the entrance to receive guests, his brother Mohamed Boube Maiga said that the military government has refused to hand over his body unless the family agrees not to request an autopsy. The family of the late former Prime Minister of Mali asks the country's military government to turn over his body without preconditions. If the march to May rains will be average or below average, there is a concrete possibility that in Kenya, Somalia and Ethiopia only between 15 and 20 million people will be in IPC3 phase and above. And millions in East Africa face hunger if rainy season fails again. Those stories and more coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. The family of the late former Prime Minister of Mali says the country's military government has refused to turn over his body unless they agree not to request an autopsy. Sumailu Bobe Maiga died this week after seven months in detention. Anne Rosenberg reports from Bamako. Former Malian Prime Minister Sumailu Bobe Maiga died Monday at a Bamako hospital. Maiga served under former President Ibrahim Boubacar Keita, who was deposed in a 2020 coup. Maiga was arrested in August 2021 on charges of fraud. His health deteriorated while in jail, and his family repeatedly sought permission to get him released for treatment. For the last three months, he has been under guard at a Bamako clinic. At Maiga's home in central Bamako Tuesday, where his family was seated by the entrance to receive guests, his brother Mohamed Boube Maiga said that the military government has refused to hand over his body unless the family agrees not to request an autopsy. He added the family has been refused access to Maiga in recent months as his health deteriorated. Not us, the family, not his friends, not even his lawyers were able to see him until his death, says the late Prime Minister's brother. So he died without any family members bearing witness. He died in the hands of the guards. Several Malian political parties, along with the head of Mali's UN mission and the president of neighboring Niger, Mohamed Bazoum, have publicly reacted to Maga's death. The spokesperson for a group of opposition parties, Ishmael Sako, talked to VOA from Bamako via a messaging app. Cette perte être, uh... Sako says this could have been a form of political assassination to eliminate Sumelu Boube Maga. So it's important to us, he says, that there is an investigation. Agibu Bwari is the president of Mali's National Human Rights Commission, a governmental agency that investigates human rights abuse accusations around the country. Bwari says that the commission monitored Maga's case, but as it was denied access to the former prime minister while he was in the hospital. Bwari said that all prisoners, including Maga, who had not yet been tried, have the right to medical treatment and to receive visits from family. Bwari says human rights must be respected at all times, in all places, and in all circumstances, especially during exceptional circumstances and periods of crisis. There are certain people who justify human rights violations during these periods, he says. This is not acceptable. VOA attempted to reach a Malian army spokesman for comment, but he did not return phone calls. 
The government released a short statement Monday announcing Micah's death after a long illness. The military government ordered Radio France International and France 24 off the air last week after RFI and Human Rights Watch reported on alleged human rights abuses by Mali's army. Annie Reisenberg for VOA News, Bamako, Mali. Aid agencies working in East Africa warn of a massive humanitarian crisis if the coming rainy season falls short of expectations. The aid groups say persistent drought has left 44 million people in urgent need of assistance across Ethiopia, Kenya, Somalia, and South Sudan. Mohamed Yusuf reports. Millions of people are on the move in East Africa as drought takes their livelihoods and most are forced to flee their homes in search of food and water. Francesco Rigamotti is the regional humanitarian coordinator for Oxfam, Horn, East and Central Africa. He says if nothing is done, the situation is poised to get worse in coming weeks. The crisis can actually worsen until and beyond June. If the March to May rains will be average or below average, there is a concrete possibility that in Kenya, Somalia and Ethiopia only, between 15 and 20 million people will be in IPC3 phase and above. And unfortunately, the experts are telling us that in South Sudan already, between May and July, 8.3 million people will be in this situation. The aid agencies use the IPC scale to classify household food insecurity. IPC phase 3 means the households have food consumption gaps that can lead to acute malnutrition. Since January, at least 13 million people in Ethiopia, Kenya and Somalia have been displaced in search of water and pastures for their livestock. In Kenya, crop production has dropped by 70%. Oxfam International Head Gabriela Bucha travelled to Somali regions to witness the drought situation and what it is doing to people. She says communities are finding it difficult to adapt to the changes in weather patterns. For centuries, pastoralists have been extremely resilient and, and incredible coping mechanisms in very harsh conditions. But the current situation, the severity of the droughts and the long extension and how many countries are, are affected is breaking those traditional coping mechanisms. And in reality, we see that the climate crisis is present there and they're suffering the worst consequences of something that did almost nothing to generate. So we know this is an issue of, of justice because it's us, the global community, that needs to be, to be aware and, and respond. The aid agencies say more than 650,000 Somalis have fled their homes due to drought, leaving almost half of the children under the age of five acutely malnourished. Javier Rio Navarro is the head of ECO Somalia, a European Union emergency response organization. He says the country is facing famine. Today we face a number of hard truths in Somalia. There is the consequences of the drought that are catastrophic, and posing a very real threat of famine in country. The other real truth is that the capacities of the partners are overstretched, and the additional reality is that um, additional funding is hard to come by. Hence, collectively, uh, we, need, uh, we need to recognize that the common single priority of humanitarians in Somalia today is to save lives. In 2017, humanitarian organizations averted possible famine by getting supplies to communities in hard-to-reach areas on time and using the lessons learned during the 2011 famine, 
which killed a quarter of a million people. Aid agencies are appealing for more funding to reach millions and save lives. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. Ongoing conflicts across Eastern Europe, Africa and the Middle East continue to inhibit the fight against tuberculosis as the world marks International TB Day today. The World Health Organization says there is an urgent need for investment of resources, support, care and information into the fight against TB. Maureen Ojambo reports. More than 66 million lives have been saved from TB the last two decades since the year 2000, a number that COVID-19 pandemic has reversed. For the first time in over a decade, tuberculosis deaths increased in the year 2020. According to the World Health Organization, global spending on TB diagnostics, treatments and prevention in 2020 were less than half of the global target of 13 billion US dollars annually by 2022. Director of Global Tuberculosis Program at the World Health Organization, Teresa Kasaeva, says globally, little progress has been made in fight against the disease since COVID-19 struck. There has been insufficient progress made in closing case detection gaps with still far fewer people diagnosed and treated or provided with TB preventive treatment compared with 2019 before the COVID-19 pandemic. There remains a shortfall of 13% in notifications of people with TB compared with the before the onset of the pandemic. 25% of TB cases were reported in Africa, with the largest number of new cases occurring in Southeast Asia at 43%. According to the WHO, in 2020, 63% of children and young adolescents below 15 years of age with TB did not access diagnostic and treatment services. Kerry Vine is a TB advisor at the WHO's Global TB Organization. She says children under the age of five who are eligible for treatment did not receive it. WHO estimates that 1.1 million children and young adolescents become ill with TB every year, almost half of them aged below five years of age. Unfortunately, less than half of these children and adolescents are diagnosed or reported, which means that there is a large detection gap. In 2020, approximately 226,000 children died due to TB, and again, most of these children did not access TB care. According to Kenya's Ministry of Health, about 140,000 people develop tuberculosis in a year, with more than 40,000 of them being HIV positive. The head of monitoring and evaluation at the National Tuberculosis Program in Kenya, Iban Rono, says Kenya is among the most affected countries with the disease. We are a high burden country, one of those countries that uh, I think there are around 20 to 25 countries that are high burden for tuberculosis and tuberculosis and HIV. So it means we contribute about 80% of the global burden of tuberculosis, which is really a serious issue. Last year we enrolled uh, 77,000 people on treatment. So if you look at that against the incidence, it's around 55%. So we still have around 45% to cover. He says newly invented tools will improve the diagnosis and treatment in the country. In terms of diagnosis, we are exploring together with partners, WHO and research organizations. I think there are new tools that may be able to help us to diagnose children with tuberculosis, including using alternative specimen like stool and many others. So we should be able to, to improve. We're still doing active case finding for the same as well. We're doing contact tracing in the
the families where there is a TB adult, so we want to screen the children. The WHO is calling for urgent investment to develop and expand access to innovative services and tools to prevent, detect and treat TB. But in countries like Kenya, the donated drugs have been stolen by individuals who resold them to private pharmacies and black market. The UN-based Global Fund, which finances the fight against HIV and AIDS, tuberculosis and malaria, last week accused the Kenya Medical Supplies Authority of stealing medical equipment, among them drugs. The findings come after an audit on the authority, which found out that more than 900,000 mosquito nets, over 1 million condoms and tuberculosis drugs worth 100,000 U.S. dollars went missing in the warehouse in Nairobi, allegations that the authority has refuted. Teresa Kasaeva says more money should be invested to help countries bridge the gap in TB research. We would like to call for an increase in domestic and international investments to close funding gaps for TB implementation and research. However, for countries with weaker economies, especially following the enormous social economic impacts of COVID-19, international support will be required in the short or medium term. Tuberculosis remains one of the most uh, world's most infectious killer disease. Each day, over 4,000 people lose lives to the illness and close to 30,000 people per year fall ill with the disease despite it being preventable and curable. With these years, World TB Day theme being invest to NTB saves life, the WHO calls on individuals, communities, societies, donors and governments to do their part to end tuberculosis. Reporting for VOS Daybreak Africa, I am Moreno Giambo in Sacramento, California. The UN Refugee Agency and partners are working with Mozambique's government to aid thousands of families devastated by Cyclone Gombe, which struck the island nation earlier this month. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. Cyclone Gombe swept across central and northern Mozambique on March 11th, destroying homes, flooding farmland, and forcing tens of thousands of people to flee in search of safety. Initial relief efforts were delayed because of storm damage to many key roads. The UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs says about 60 people were killed, more than 80 injured, and some 488,000 were affected by Gombe. It was the strongest storm to strike Mozambique since Cyclones Idai and Kenneth wreaked havoc on the island nation in 2019. UN Refugee Agency spokesman Boris Cheshikov says more than 380,000 people were affected in Nampula province alone. He says the victims, who include tens of thousands of displaced people, need urgent humanitarian assistance. While the intensity and impact of Cyclone Gombe appears to be less severe than Idai and Kenneth, this was a category storm which brought fierce winds of up to 190 kilometers per hour heavy rain and thunderstorms, it damaged critical infrastructure, it cut power and communications in Nampula City, as well as the nearby Maratana refugee settlement. He says sites in Cabo Delgado province hosting tens of thousands of people displaced by violent armed attacks also have been badly affected. He says the UNHCR is distributing essential items from its stockpiles to help them. Those goods will assist 62,000 refugees, internally displaced people and host communities. Every region in the world is experiencing climate hazards. Those with the least means to adapt are hit the hardest, including refugees, 
internally displaced and stateless people, women, children, older people, people with disabilities, and indigenous peoples are disproportionately affected. The United Nations says the full impact and magnitude of damage done by Cyclone Gombe is not yet known and is likely to be more serious than initial findings indicate. Cheshire says the UNHCR and its partners are assessing the protection and humanitarian needs of displaced cyclone survivors. Besides basic needs for shelter, food and health care, he expects many will require protection from sexual exploitation and abuse, as well as counseling to help them deal with mental trauma. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. What is front and center for President Biden in his talks with his European partners in Brussels? Gustavo Gresso, senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, tells VOA's Carol Van Dam the most important track right now is the military one and how best the U.S. and NATO can support Ukrainian troops. A lot of uh, NATO's eastern flank partners are in a, in a good position to deliver because they have in their inventory ammunition and military equipment that the Ukrainians can use right on the spot. Uh, they can, they don't need extra training on that. But of course, on the medium term, sort of this is a short-term solution. On the medium term, one one needs to equip them also with with stuff that is more sustainable, especially in air defense. I mean, we have few, very few operators of S-300 and Buk systems, and the Ukrainians need more ammunition. We'll get them some, but at a certain point, they need a different system that we can supply more freely. Is there pushback from the European leaders on Biden to relax his stand on American air equipment? Do they want him to send F-16 fighters and saying, well, don't worry about training them. We'll take care of that. Is there anything like that going on? Well, the problem is that would be sort of F-16s would be the most complicated system to give them. It needs extensive training. But uh, we're talking actually a lot about face-to-air missiles and bigger ones than Stingers and Eaglers and Groms. So there are more export-oriented systems that are easier to train on than more complex ones. So so there are solutions. And the other thing, I mean, everybody talks about the air situation, but the other thing is sort of ground forces, uh, main battle tanks, uh, armored infantry fighting vehicles, artillery, artillery ammunition. Uh, the Ukrainians need to recreate and replenish their, their mechanized reserves. Otherwise, they can't continue this kind of mobile defense. And that is, uh, of course, it's, it will create vacuums in, in Poland or Romania who have, for example, these systems in large quantities because they're using them themselves. And, and there will be an issue sort of oh, which European ally, ally and to what extent uh, Americans and Canadians can deploy forces to these countries when they empty their storages and, and give the Ukrainian stuff that they're, they're using themselves. Then, of course, there's the sanctions issue, um, how to tighten the screws on the Russian economy in order to sort of drain uh, the financial sector or basically drain the war economy and, and make, make Russia crash land harder than, than, than we're doing this right now. And in between kind of talking about all sorts of constituencies that may or may not happen, what, what is about chemical weapons? Russia might still use them to kind of, especially in the main in Syria, you know, blame the Ukrainians for, for using them while using them sort of deploying them themselves. And so kind of like a false flag scenario, you're saying? Yeah, yes. False flag scenario where, where it's very difficult, sort of, the Russians are playing for time now. And of course, a chemical incident where it's not sort of 100% clear who's responsible, it would give them time. You're thinking Russian forces right now have entered into this phase where they're reorganizing, regrouping, then this could be one of the things they say just to kind of like distract everyone, right? Yes. 
So, so currently, I mean, to a large extent, the, the Russian offensive is, is stalled. To some extent, Russian forces are a bit overstretched. To some extent, it's a kind of working up the chaos that was created by completely wrong war plan. They haven't anticipated stuff, stiff resistance, so they didn't bring along a lot of capabilities and, and logistical units that they would need to sustain such a, a large war. That was Gustavo Gresso, senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. He was speaking with my colleague, Karl Van Damme, on Wednesday from Berlin, Germany. Hundreds of Nigerian students who safely fled Ukraine were close to graduating when Russia invaded the country. And some Ukrainian professors, despite being under fire, have continued their classes online where they are exchanging stories of hope and survival. Timothy Biezu reports from Abuja. A sixth-year medical student at Ternopil National Medical University in Ukraine, Dominic Oru, a Nigerian, was two months from completing his medical degree when Russian forces invaded the country on February 24th. Oru woke up that day to news about explosions in many Ukrainian cities. And like hundreds of students in Ternopil, he fled to Romania. From there, he took a government-chartered flight to Nigeria in early March. This week, however, Oru and his colleagues resumed their classes online. He says it's been more like a reunion. Our major conversation was about how we didn't get to have a proper goodbye to each other because we're thinking that, oh, we still had time. There was going to be the graduation ceremony where we're going to have, like, pictures and everything. Oru says that amid the uncertainties, he is keeping his hopes high, even though he worries about his teacher in Ukraine, who is also doubling as a frontline responder. He looks really, really very stressed. He looked like he had had like very little amount of sleep. You could see the eye bags around his eyes. My class, which I had on Monday, like about 30 minutes to the end of the class, he got a call and, of course, he excused himself. Nigerian authorities said about 8,000 nationals were living in Ukraine when the invasion began. About 5,600 of them were students. 16-year-old freshman medical student Fatima Bafa also returned to Nigeria weeks ago and started virtual learning as well. But for her, it's not the same. I really miss attending my typical classes, seeing my friends and my teachers. Fatima started her medical training last September. Now her mother, Salah Bafa, says she must stay out of Ukraine. We can't take her back. We need the place that can. she studies faithfully because my daughter, she's so young. She's just 16 years. Dominic Oru and his colleagues were planning a big dinner party to celebrate their graduation. But now he fears he may never see some of his classmates again. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. For more African news and features, visit our website at voanews.com. And connect with us on all social media platforms like Twitter and Instagram. I'm Douglas Impuga in Washington, wishing you a wonderful day. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel. Coming up, a conversation with Lauren Speranza, an analyst at the Center for European Policy Analysis. She will analyze the results of meetings among NATO and G7 allies in Brussels and their efforts to widen sanctions and coordinate defensive and humanitarian activities to thwart Russia's unprovoked aggression in Ukraine.
Defense Press Conference USA this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. Sports fans, brighten your day by tuning into the sunny side of sports Monday through Friday at 1630 and 1830 UTC. Join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny and on Twitter at VOA Sunny Sports or check out the blog at blogs.voanews.com forward slash sunny. It's the sunny side of sports right here on the Voice of America. (laughs) 